paloma y voló. Oh, oh, ay, marinero navegó. Hi everyone, my name is Leticia Peguero and thank you for joining me on Out of the Margins, where we're defining youth justice one podcast at a time. Today I am super excited to be speaking with Allison Brown. She is the executive director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund. Allison, thank you so much for, for hanging out with us today and, and telling us all about your work and, you know, just sharing space with us. Um, but want to start with hearing about you. So I feel like I talk to you all the time and yet there's like lots of things I don't know about you, Allison. So tell me, like, where'd you grow up? You know, like, give us a sense of, of who little Allison was and, and how she wound up where she is today. Um, I'm one of three kids. I was the oldest. I am the oldest um, of the three. And um, my parents, my folks, my family, my people are from Mississippi, Yasu City, Mississippi. So they are uh, transplanted from Mississippi, from the South, and we're, we're very much part of the Great Migration. Um, and so, you know, my, my siblings and I are, on my dad's side, the first generation born in Indianapolis, and my mother was very, very young. She's the oldest of eight kids, and she was very, very young when her mom moved north to Indianapolis. Um, so that great migration story is very much my story. I always did well in school and my mother is a, a school teacher. And so she was, she really modeled for me how to be an advocate. Um, I was a very shy child, a very quiet child, uh, and could easily have been labeled as special education or something else. But she was always there by my side and, and knew very well how to navigate the system and how to speak on my behalf. And so, you know, she made sure that I was in the accelerated classes and that I was um, really pushed and challenged academically so that I had some really tremendous opportunities when I when I graduated high school. So, I, you know, there's something that you said. You said um, uh, that that your mom uh, taught you how to be an advocate. So, so one of the things that we've been doing in these conversations is trying to unpack um, the language, right, that those of us on, on one end of the political spectrum use all the time. So tell me about that. Like, what, what does it mean to be an advocate, like, for in, in, the, in your lived experience, but also, like, what did your mom teach you that it means? Well, you know, in my lived experience, that really meant that she was constantly present. Although, you know, I had a very comfortable and very, um, very good childhood. It's a very family-friendly place. Um, navigating that, that uh, system of white supremacy is very challenging in all places, um, and Indiana in particular. And so she did uh, a really remarkable job at, um, making sure that people knew that her children were actually uh, geniuses and should be nurtured as such. And so, you know, it was, it was my mother's advocacy and the language of educators that really showed me that it's important to be able to do that for the folks who maybe don't have that advocacy um, just embedded in their, you know, familial structure. Um, or who don't have the, the same language or tools to be the advocates that will move the ball and move them into the right circumstances to be able to access these opportunities. So, you know, I, I, I um, 
often hear from my family that I look like my mother and sound like my mother. And I, I, take, very, I take great pride in that because she's a very good, um, quiet power. And I appreciate that. There's something that you said that I want us to, um, to think about and talk about is this system of, of white supremacy and how, um, how that permeates the, the, the systems that we're talking about here, right, education or lack thereof and opportunity. Um, and so just in your experience, right, as a woman of color, as a black woman, um, as someone that has um, educational privilege now, um, just tell me, like, how, how did you experience that in growing up, right, or growing up in Indiana, just just touch upon that a little bit. You know, I um, uh, my my daughter's name is Zora, and she's named for Zora Neale Hurston. And I, one of the quotations that I most remember from Zora Neale is about. And I'm not going to do it justice, so I won't try to quote it verbatim. But <laughs> it's it's about you know. Um, Jim Crow and segregation, and she says, you know, she's she's puzzled, you know, by why why wouldn't people want to be around me and my brilliance? I don't understand, you know. And, and if they don't want it, then so be it, you know. Then I get to have my brilliance to myself. And so, um, you know, I I I think because my family is so big and they're all really kind of rooted in Indianapolis now, you know, I I grew up understanding that I was. Um, that we all were special and that, um, you know, we really um, were the, the, the smartest folks in the room and that we were, um, you know, really to be valued. And so that when I encountered um, teachers and students, peers of mine who didn't see me at all or who didn't see that specialness in me, uh, and, you know, often um, teachers who might try to take it from me, um, I, I think I had a, a strong enough foundation in who I was and what I brought to the table that it, it that couldn't be disrupted. Hmm. Um, so I, I remember in particular in high school, um, I had a teacher, uh, a white female teacher who, um, you know, she decided to, at the end of the senior year, and she decided to go around the room and, you know, say to each one of the students, you know, what she thought they were, she, what she saw them doing in the future and what she pictured, you know, as part of their future. Um, and again, you know, I was one of two black kids in the classroom then. Um, and so, you know, she went one by one, each child, you know, one was a neuroscientist, another was like a bioengineer. She got to my friend first, the other black girl in the class. And, um, you know, she said she pictured her as maybe a hairdresser. She got around to me and she just was, she said, I don't know, Allison, I don't know what you're going to be, and moved on, you know, and, and continued to name for every other kid in the room what, what great things they were going to do in the future. Um, but even, you know, even as a, a 17-year-old kid at that point, it was, that to me was just funny, you know, it was just, uh, and it has stuck with me, of course it made me angry, um, that this adult, this grown woman was perpetuating the system, you know, of white supremacy in such, in, in such a blatant way. It absolutely made me angry and it clearly has had an effect on me because that, my memory is horrible. And I remember that very clearly. I literally went home and laughed about it with my family. 
um, you know, this, oh, crazy, you know, crazy, crazy people um, who know not what they do and know not who they shun. Um, so, you know, just having that foundation of greatness that my family really cultivated was huge and has been huge. And I, I hope that, you know, I'm able to, to try to pass that on to my kids and to, uh, to young people who, you know, who are, are really suffering in this, this very, very broken system that we have to navigate. I think about all the young people that we all care about, those that we're connected to and that we're not who have heard that um, said to them in so many ways, right? And maybe for whatever reasons have yet not learned to laugh at it, right? What does that do to the, to the soul, to the, to the ambition, to the want, to the desire, and to the dreams of, of the communities that we care about, right? Because we know that the system is broken um, and that it's harmful, um, so on that note, Allison, you are the executive director, um, of, of a group that I am excited to be a part of, uh, the Communities for Just Schools Fund. And so would love to hear, you know, just a little bit of what, what you're doing there. And then we can, we can talk vision and all other, um, awesome stuff, which I know, uh, you've been thinking about. We are a donor collaborative. Uh, we support community organizing, community-based organizations all over the country uh, who are really pushing to uh, end the school discipline pipeline, end disparities in school discipline, uh, and really create and ensure um, healthy school climates for, for all young people. Um, and so we currently have 13 foundations who are members of the fund, uh, and we have the great privilege of re-granting their dollars specifically to community organizers around the country. Um, many of those organizers are young people, so they are in high school or, or recently graduated or, or um, left high school uh, and are really speaking from personal experience about the, the climates that they endured. Um, and, you know, we have seen video, troubling, troubling video of resource officers and others really being abusive and harmful toward uh, young people and, and uh, often, um, too often, those young people are uh, people of color who are um, being arrested for things like talking back to a teacher or um, almost getting into a fight maybe um, or, uh, you know, you know, six and seven-year-old children being handcuffed for, for things like throwing a tantrum in school, uh, three and four-year-old children being suspended from pre-K and preschool, um, and so schools, which, you know, really should be extensions of the community, they should be nurturing environments, they should be healthy learning environments, they should be encouraging creativity, encouraging that critical analysis and critical thought that we talked about earlier. Um, schools are, are often uh, dangerous places for black and brown young people. Uh, when they uh, enter the school building, they're not assured safety. And you know, safety as a notion really has taken on a life of its own and often is, is used to mean more law enforcement, more school security equipment and school security procedures. Um, but that, when, when that is actually implemented, additional security 
um, measures like that, then we often see an uptick in arrests and uh, violent encounters between young people and law enforcement. And so we really want to try to reclaim that notion of safety um, and understanding of what it is that we're trying to nurture in young people and the, the genius that they bring in their heritage, in their culture, in their language, in their, um, their spiritual, spiritual practices. Uh, and in their family structure and, and who is backing them and, and who they bring with them into the, the school environment so that we are appreciating those things, celebrating those things, and really using those as the launch pad for, their, for young people's success. I think about this term, um, like school to prison pipeline, right? And, yeah. and um, like it's just, I, I feel like it, it, it captures, right, like some of, of how the system has um, evolved over, um, I'd say over always, but, you know, sp- specifically, you know, as we're looking at the past 40 years. But, but what, do, what do you mean by that? Like what, what when we yeah. sort of when people I've, I've read it actually a couple of times in The New York Times on some articles and I've just wondered, um, you know, like when others read it that are not working in the space, what do they hear? So I just, I'd love for you to tell me a little bit, like what does the Communities for Just Schools Fund mean when when you say school to prison pipeline? So school to prison pipeline is a, a term that was coined by uh, youth leaders, parent and community leaders many, many years ago. So, you know, the, the movement around school to prison pipeline really started about, you know, the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, and it was really created in order to shock the conscience and let people know that um, that terrible things were happening and terrible outcomes were um, were happening for young people. Um, and so, when we talk about when we at the Communities for Just Schools Fund talk about the school to prison pipeline, we are talking about the the um, kind of twofold pipeline um, that the, the, the originators of that term were referencing. So the first side of the pipeline really is a literal pipeline that, that literally children are being arrested into juvenile detention facilities and, and adult det- criminal justice detention facilities um, for, you know, things that are happening in the school environment, that there's a literal pipeline to prison. And I um, am a... a former litigator. I used to work for the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division's Educational Opportunity Section. Um, and there we litigated cases where where there were literal pipelines from the school into the juvenile detention facility. So that, uh, for example, in one high school um, that we were uh, investigating, uh, the, the kids called it uh, a walk of shame because every day um, black students were being carted out in handcuffs and um, and shackles, their their ankles shackled um, by police. For um, you know, some kids were wearing the wrong school uniform or were um, talking during quiet time or crying during a paddling or you know things like that um, that kids were being arrested for. So there's the literal pipeline to prison, and then there's the the more um, theoretical pipeline to prison so that data from the Council of State Governments and um, Civil Rights Project at um, 
Berkeley and um, the uh, equity project at Indiana University, um, data has shown that the effects of suspending and expelling children are very costly, not only to state and local budget, but also to the future of young people. So that students who are suspended once are more likely to be suspended again, and students who are suspended more than once are more likely to actually end up in, um, end up dropping out of school and end up in the criminal justice system than, than other students. So that there is that, that also, um, you know, theoretical and figurative uh, pipeline to prison for those students who are, are kicked out of school and, and kicked out of education, the, the access to educational opportunities. We're, when we're talking about the school to prison pipeline, we're talking about the, both the literal pipeline to prison and the figures. So how did we get here? I mean, I think it's really important to to tell the story, right? That, like, how, have, how has this become the norm? Um especially something that you said earlier, you know, um, schools are supposed to be extensions of the community. And so oftentimes when I think about that and I think about um, what what sometimes the communities, right, like, like the over-policing in community has somehow bled into the over-policing of schools, um, and yet I know that that's not what you mean, right? They're supposed to be extensions of loving community, of our beloved community, um, as Dr. King um, uh, taught us, right? Um, so I just like would love to hear your thoughts. Like, how have we gotten here in this like crazy state of affairs, right, where we're arresting five-year-old children, where young people are talking about a walk of shame? Like, yeah, like how did we get here? We have again, as a nation, a very troubled history, um, a, a racial history. And so, uh, you know, some trace our current state back to the, the war on drugs and the Gun Free Schools Act that was passed by um, the, the uh, Clinton administration. Um, and then, the, you know, the Columbine shooting that really kind of elevated talk about safety in schools mm -hmm. and then elevated law enforcement and policing um, in school environments. Uh, so, you know, some trace it back to that as kind of in the origins of zero tolerance of, you know, police in schools um, as what, what has been driving racial disparities in school discipline for many years. Um, and so, you know, we've seen shootings in Columbine and in Newtown. Um, the, the shootings we know are, are tragic occurrences and, you know, really strike fear and should in the hearts of, of especially parents and, um, and community members and families. Um, what, we, what we see happening is that the shootings happen in white suburban neighborhoods that then receive adequate social services, um, healthy uh, relationships between community and school members and, uh, and you know, law enforcement who come in to really protect the perimeters of the schools and mm -hmm. protect the young people and, and really respect and, and protect the young people and their humanity from external forces. Um, and at the same time, then we see an increase in law enforcement in urban community who then experience law enforcement that is policing inward and policing the young people in the buildings 
um, really turning their guns and their policing on the young people themselves, um, policing behavior that is, um, you know, really developmentally appropriate, um, policing that is put in place instead of social services, mental health services, um, you know, counseling and, and uh, academic support services, so that schools that already have been starved of resources uh, in urban communities where there are not uh, the same number of highly qualified teachers, you don't see the same number of computers and, and books and um, even just the, the facilities themselves, the buildings themselves, don't compare to the, the, the buildings that we see in suburban uh, predominantly white uh, communities uh, then receive more police and more police equipment so that then they are even more um, uh, oppressed and more uh, put upon than they had been previously. Um, and, you know, I, I would trace it back even further to say that, you know, if you look at, at um, Brown v. Board and the, the, um, the legacy of Brown, uh, you know, the, when you look at very closely at how Charlie Houston and Thurgood Marshall really built the strategy that became Brown v. Board, they were building over a number of years, and they were building together with black teachers, they were building together with community, and they were building toward equity, they were building toward racial equity. Um, education was one piece of that, and they chose education first, um, or second, after trans public transportation, and they were kind of building toward a more natural national strategy. Um, and, you know, Charlie Houston passed away in 1950 before Brown ever was decided and Thurgood Marshall was eventually promoted. You know, he was appointed Solicitor General and then to the Supreme Court. And so that, that um, strategy never really had a chance to really get fully fleshed out. Um, and we kind of stopped and celebrated Brown. But uh, you know, after Brown v. Board, 30,000 black teachers lost their jobs. Integration happened for a moment, um, but it wasn't healthy. Um, and, and uh, you know, we've seen lately um, resegregation that actually matches and even is worse than we saw before Brown v. Board in many, many different cities. And so, you know, we, we've never really addressed our racial sickness. Whatever treatments we might put in place, we have to continue to build strategy toward equity that includes schools, includes communities, and includes police and health systems and others um, in that larger strategy and in partnership with one another. And we have to be very explicit about what we're talking about. We're, and we're talking specifically about racial hierarchy and the myth of it. Um, so that, that until we can really do that honestly with one another, we will continue to see tremendous disparities. Um, and we, the, the fixes that we might put in place if we don't talk about race in those fixes won't last very long. You know, I, but first, I, I love um, the term ra racial sickness, right? Um, I think it's a powerful way. One of the things that we've been doing in these conversations is really naming things, right? Because I always, I, I'm a true believer that if we don't name sort of our personal demons or gremlins, but also societal demons and gremlins, then, then, they, um, then they have power, right? They have power over us and they have power over our interventions and our hopes and our dreams. So I just want to thank you for, for naming that. So when we're talking about, because we've been talking a lot about these young people, like who are they? Like just give us a sense of 
of who they are. And when we talk about all young people, like who are, who are we talking about here? Immediately what popped into my mind is a, a young man that I met in um, Mississippi um, who was, uh, you know, very, very bright, clearly very, very bright. Um, he was wearing an ankle bracelet. So he'd been arrested and had served time in the juvenile detention facility. Um, and he was telling me about, and, and again, with that kind of confusion, you know, when we talk about um, the, the manifestations of structural racism, um, we, we understand that, that is, it is traumatizing to people, and especially to young people. Um, and so we have this historical trauma as a, you know, as a people, Black people in this country. We have this historical trauma that really often manifests as this confusion, this, you know, just, and I just remember how confused he was by his circumstances, because what he shared with me was that he, it was testing time, and so the schedules were all off, and so, um, you know, they were being released early from school. Um, he lived around the corner from the school and decided to walk home rather than taking the school bus. But the, and this was an all black high school, the, the school board had mandated that the students must take the school bus during testing time for whatever, I don't, I don't know the reason. Um, and so because he walked home, he was arrested by police and that is how he had the ankle bracelet, um, why he was wearing the ankle bracelet. And, and again, in the retelling, he just, he was so confused and just did not understand what would warrant anyone uh, placing him under arrest. And, and, you know, again, he was, he was clearly very, very bright. He was clearly very intellectually curious. He was asking questions constantly about, you know, the law and what lawyers do and what, do, you know, he was. Um, and so this, this encounter with law enforcement was just, um, it, it really just, it struck him and he couldn't, he could not fathom the why of it. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the young people that we work with and that we have the, the privilege to support um, are grappling with this question of why. I just don't understand why. You know, the, the work that they are doing is really to organize one another to make sure not only that the, the policies are changed, but that we change narrative about young people and who they are um, and that we can understand that they are um, just as human, just as um, uh, curious, just as precocious, just as fun and engaging as anyone else, and that they really should have the same privileges, the same opportunities, the same access to, um, to success, and that when that happens, we all benefit because we are a society, we are all in the same boat. Um, and I, I can't remember who said it, but you know, um, I remember a speaker who said, you know, we're, we're literally sitting in the same rowboat and there's a hole on one side of the boat and it's leaking and the folks on the other side are, are refusing to help plug it because it's not their side of the boat. 
Um, but we're all going down in that same boat. And so if we don't fix that hole, if we don't make sure that all of our children are successful and that the children who do live at those margins that you talk about, Leticia, um, have access, the same access and the same opportunities, then we are all going down in this boat. You know, when I hear those stories of, of confusion, right, of um, I, I am always uh, I get a little emotional because it reminds me of, you know, I, before getting into philanthropy, I did direct service with young people that oftentimes that was in the legal conversation. It, it was oftentimes conversations of access and uh, um, and of having already come out of the system. They came to us uh, sometimes when they had already been in the in the JJ system juvenile justice system and there was that that feeling always um left me very heavy you want to find answers and ways and you know that it's so deeply rooted right in this in this um this history of the united states for i'm i'm at a loss for uh, for words there i want to talk about uh, just briefly about the work of organizing the communities for just schools fund supports groups, community-based organizations that are organizing, doing community organizing around these issues that we've been talking about. So what is that work? And the reason that I ask that question is because, you know, I'm oftentimes in conversations with folks right on, on both ends of the political spectrum and some in the middle, and somehow community organizing has become code for, like, progressive or... Or, or politically liberal, right? And, I, and I've and i been telling folks, like, no, actually organizing happens at, like, on all ends of the spectrum. Um, and somehow, I'm not sure how that happens, if, it's, if it was sort of that President Obama was an organizer. I, like, I don't know. Um, is it sort of it's tied to labor and unions? I'm not sure. I'm going to do a little research on that. But love to hear like what is the work of the folks that you're supporting and and what are some of the things that they're trying to to win or to change well you know i'm so glad that you said that because you're you're so right that you know for some reason community organizing is seen this you know kind of um far far left concept that ought not be touched by anyone uh, but we're all organizing and what we do you know whatever we're doing we're organizing and we're being organized in various ways even if it's just to to, to support a kickstarter campaign or something like that the notion of community as though we're not all part of a community or, or that we're not all community members um and you you know using community often to mean the, the communities at the margins and you know, black and brown communities in particular, low-income communities. Um, so, you know, I think that that has a lot to do with it so that our understanding of community isn't, isn't that all of us are part of community, but that we're, when we're talking about community, we're actually talking about um, the other, so to speak. Um, but, you know, when I, when I think about our grantees, I, you know, I think about the folks at, you know, Black Organizing Project and Coleman Advocates and um, Youth on Board in Boston and Voice in Chicago and Texas Organizing Project and so many others. We have um, currently 23 grantees. We're growing to about 50 grantees all over the country. Um, you know, the work that they're doing is um, multifaceted. And, you know, I think in philanthropy, we have a tendency to be very siloed and very segmented in what we do so that, you know, the work that 
that I do at the Communities for Just Schools Fund, for example, is school discipline and the work that folks at another foundation, you know, might be education, which is somehow distinct from school discipline. <laughs> and then another foundation might be focused on criminal justice or and or juvenile justice. And, and all of that is separate, you know, so we're not having the same conversation in philanthropy. Um, and then we give our grants within those silos. Um, and so often our grantees are having to understand Understand our language and having to speak to our language in order to get their proposals through. Um, but you know, the, the, what they're actually doing is very, very multi-layered, and it's um, it's touching on every segment of their of their um, lived experiences, so that they are absolutely advocating. they 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 are educating um, their members and the folks in their neighborhoods about, you know, what's happening in their communities and the ways in which, for example, school discipline disparities um, are related to, you know, the larger structures and related to, um, you know, troubling policing that they might be experiencing in their communities uh, are related to the lack of health services that they are being provided when they go to the hospital or to the doctor um, are related to all of these things that, that people might know instinctually are not right, but may not know, um, you know, where, where it connects to the larger system or what to do about it. Um, and so the organizers are educating, they are, um, they are developing way, devising ways to really address those issues, and they are um, training community members to to be the, the the folks that are the tactical people who are changing their circumstances, um, and they are doing that by you know talking to the to government officials state local national government officials about their experiences they are coming up with best practices and um and lobbying for those best practices they are um you know devising ways of creating new structures so when i think about you know the the dream defenders and power you in miami um they are you know really kind of replicating the freedom school model um to say you know we don't maybe we just need to create our own schools that will celebrate our children celebrate where they come from and, and develop a curriculum that actually teaches them really their history uh, and teaches them the the greatness that they come from so that they that's what they walk in when they walk anywhere um, uh, so that you know I think that the and and what philanthropy can do and should be doing is understanding how organizing is um, you know none of the work that we see or do, happens without organizing. Organizing is the, the impetus for much of the policy reform that we see, for much of the research that we see and support. Um, and so the nuanced ways in which philanthropy should understand organizing and assess the success of organizing and provide supports to organizing um, are really where I think the Communities for Just Schools Fund is trying to provide um, our own education for for philanthropy and donors, and also uh, as we are ourselves thinking about how we organize within philanthropy for support of organizers as a, you know, a really a viable and necessary means for systemic reform. So I'm going to ask you, you know, we, we have a few minutes left, but I want to ask you to dream a little bit. What would you dream 
to have to be able to tell when we recap this conversations this conversation 20 years from now i have two kids my they are 13 and 10 my oldest just turned 13 yesterday he started a new school and um you know we my husband and i went to parent teacher conferences and um they were they were raving about oh you know he's he's really smart he's a great leader um all of these wonderful things they have to say about him and we came home and you know we shared with him what what great things they were saying about him and he said you know mommy i i don't feel like they expected much from me and you know he he of course is being raised as a uh um a peaceful warrior um <laughs> but he also just was very perceptive in that moment the perception of young people of color as less than human um as undeserving of respect and of of humanity um uh, that really allows for the um the suspensions and expulsions uh, that we see and for the continued deprivation of resources in their communities and in their schools because well you know they don't matter anyway um so i really am dreaming latisia that when we come back together in 20 years that we are talking about how wonderful it is to see that children are going to school they're taking with them pictures of their grandmothers and of their mothers and uncles and cousins and um and and fathers and they're sharing stories of their families and those those stories are being encouraged and invited and incorporated in the the daily instruction that they are um really being able to lead in their classrooms in ways that incorporate in healthy ways the arts and music and culture and their own backgrounds and upbringing um that they are being uh, assessed in ways that don't disrupt their educational uh experience but that uh in in fact embrace the educational experience that they have helped to create um that they are being uh provided opportunities to accelerate in every possible way so of course in reading writing and math but also in community development and in leadership opportunities and um you know really thinking the creatively about community wealth building and uh you know revenue generation and that they are um you know we're we're not talking anymore about suspension and expulsions because that's a a very primitive way of dealing with children and so that's that's far outdated and and we're instead talking about rewards and healthy discipline which means really teaching and learning about behavior um and that children no matter who and where they who are they are and where they live are being provided with adequate resources um that we are resourcing the the teacher pay that teachers are being paid what they're worth that uh, schools are being built that really uh, reflect the community's value of them as the centers of community and as the centers of society and as as the place where we all are going to be um better because of the young people that are coming out of those spaces. So that's my that's my dream for 20 years from now that our expectations of young people 
actually match who they are and what they are and what they bring to the table. Thank you, Allison, so much, everyone. We've been talking to Allison Brown, Executive Director at the Communities for Just Schools Fund. Uh, she's a, a mother, an advocate, a lawyer, and I'm going to use a term she used for her son, a peaceful warrior. I've been in, ending our conversations or the conversations with a quote and, and today um, from, from different warriors that are doing this work. Um, today, I want to end with a quote um, by Brian Stevenson. Um, in his book, Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption, he says, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. Um, and I think um, for us to question a little bit about who are the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned, and how has it come to be that way? Um, I think that's a little bit of what we've touched on today, right? How do we question right, the systems that we live in and, and the way that they've gotten to be the way they are? So um, again, we've been talking to Allison Brown. And so, Allison, if folks want to find you on Twitter or want to find the Communities for Just Schools Fund, how do they do that? I am Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Um, and the Communities for Just Schools Fund website is www.cjsfund.org. That's cjsfund. Org. And thank you so much, Leticia, for having me. This has been good. This has been fun. Out of the Margins is the team here at the Andrus Family Fund and our wonderful communications friends at Soul Design. That is S-O-L Design, based out of Atlanta. I also wanted to give a special thank you to AFF team member and musician Manuela Arciniegas and the wonderfully talented sisters of Legacy Women, whose music you hear on this podcast. Please look them up on Facebook. Again, they're called The Legacy Women. So follow us on Twitter at Andrus Fam Fund and follow me if you'd like at Letty Piguero. Thank you so much, y'all. I look forward to sharing more with you soon. Oh.